service just to think about the fact that uh, despite relationship status, earthly, you never give up on us. That is a great grace. And so uh, though relationships come and go, um, though relationships are exciting and flourishing and, and all that good stuff, God, you, you, you are the ultimate relationship that we have. Um, and so today, we pray that you do speak to us, that you guide our time together um, as we pursue thoughts on how we relate to one another, um, but ultimately how we relate to you. Um, God, that we'll see that relationships do not define us here on earth uh, but ultimately, the only relationship that defines us um, is with you. It's a person. Uh, so, Jesus, we love you. Um, be exalted in our time today. It's your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to begin by just asking you a, a quick question. Um, what is your earliest memory? When you think back to all your memories, what's the first memory you can think of? Um, and if you say, I remember coming out of my mother's womb or the, the hospital, all that, you're a liar. Um, but what is your first earliest memory? My first memory is, one of them is when I was four. I remember looking up to my older brother who could ride a bicycle outside of our house, and he would ride it down the hill. And I remember thinking, boy, I will really begin living when I can be like my older brother and ride down that bicycle down that hill. I will really, that's when life will begin. But it's funny, because then I hit eight years old, and I thought, you know, no, no, life will really begin when I can start playing coach pitch baseball. And that lasted until somebody hit me the first time. Then I was like, I don't want to do this, right? Um, but then after that occurred, I thought, what? no, life will really begin when I'm 13 and I get in middle school. And then I got in middle school and was like, this stinks. <laughs> life will really begin when I become 17 and I'm in high school and graduate from high school. And then I thought, no, no, life will really begin when I get in college and graduate from college. And then you graduate from college or go to trade school or whatever. And I thought life will really begin when I get married. And then I thought, no, 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 this is not the end. Life will really begin when I have kids. And then when I have kids, life will really begin. And after 20 years of marriage and 16 years of kids, now all I can think of is life will really begin when them suckers get off my payroll. <laughs> That's why when life will really begin. My whole point in all of that is we are a people who are always chasing something, aren't we? We're always chasing something, always chasing, and rarely satisfied. So today begins our journey of mini-series called Love and War. Thinking about that just in terms of relationships, how we're always chasing something, but we're very rarely satisfied, even in our relationship statuses, if we're honest. Well, that begins our focus and our first point for the day. It'll be on the screen above. In your handout, there's plenty of room that you can jot notes and all this kind of stuff. All this stuff will pop out on the screen. Our first and uh, focal point of today was just this. Um, being content with life, uh, being content just in essence, has a far deeper meaning than wondering when is life finally going to start happening. 
The contentment is, is, is something that rests in far deeper than if I achieve this, then life will begin. Or if I get that, then life will finally begin. It's far deeper than that contentment is. A contentment, if you look in the dictionary, is simply defined as this. It's defined as a state of happiness or satisfaction. Or something like this. A condition of being pleased despite possible external factors. And to be quite honest with you, in the flesh, it's really hard for me to believe that that's ever even possible. To be truly content or in a state of eternal happiness, all that kind of stuff. I mean, good grief, I, I just think through your life and think through my life. Um, I'll let you peer into this crazy brain. It's a scary, scary place to be. But maybe it'll help you just be honest with yourself as well. For me... I always think, how on earth does anyone achieve contentment with endless possibilities all around us, right? I mean, I go to Baumhauer's Wings, which is known for wings. Really, it's known for cheesy fries, but we'll just go keep going. Um, I order the wings, and then five minutes later, I go, golly, I really wish I would have got the burger, <laughs> right? Or I buy a sequoia. And then I looked at my Sequoia and I go, I really wish that was a Jeep CJ7. Or um, I buy my daughter a fish. And then I just want to feed the fish to the cat. <laughs> um, I live in this house and then I want that house with the pool. I take this job and then I hear how awesome the other job is. I hear Troy preaching and then I wish I was hearing Tyler preaching. How did I get my notes? <laughs> just let that in there. Um, we're always the people searching, always searching, rarely satisfied. And so now let's switch gears. Now, you knew this was coming, right? I mean, this is what you showed up for today. Um, you knew we were going to switch it to relationships. Now, think about that in terms of relationships and contentment in regards to relationships. I'm single, but I wish I was married. I'm married, but I wish I was <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Nobody wants to say it out loud. You can be honest at Save Haven, okay? Um, if, if that made you uncomfortable, this is going to be a really long series for you, okay? If you get uncomfortable with uncomfortable statements, this is going to be a hard series. Um, I actually enjoy being single, but everyone says I have to get married, so I might as well just date, at least get a Tinder account. I married this person, but I wonder what it's like to be married to that person. I'm dating, and everyone I date is a weirdo, except for maybe this next person that I'm going to date with. I don't have kids, and I wish I had them to hug them and to hold them. Well, I have kids, and you can have them. <laughs> right? <laughs> relationships really are a love and war, aren't they? Relationships is this tension of contentment versus discontentment. Um, what do we do with what we have? Well, welcome to Safe Haven Church. My name is Troy Nicholson, and I'm one of the teaching pastors. Um, I do not claim to be a marriage expert. Again, I've only been married for 20 years. I am grossly inadequate to tell you how to have a great marriage or the secrets to marriage. But my goal in this series is just to point us to Scripture and to see what do relationships look like and how can we possibly find contentment in those relationships through this series that we're calling 
love and war. So this leads us to our second point of the day. Would you just continue to journey along with us? Our second point is this. Contentment, I believe, can either be our nemesis um, or it can be indeed our saving grace. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, Lack of contentment is a nemesis because it's a constant thorn in the flesh. And so if you let it just kind of rest in that discontentment, it will constantly be that nemesis that drives you crazy. Will I ever be satisfied? Will I ever find completement? Will I ever be content? Will I ever, will I ever, will I ever is kind of the nemesis factor of contentment. It can be a perpetual state of nagging. For some of you, you came in this room and you're constantly nagged by your current relationship status. It can be a constant source of wondering Will I ever get married? Am I stuck in my marriage? Will I ever find happiness? Will I ever find contentment? Will my friends ever be good friends? Will I? All these questions. And a constant source of striving. If we're not careful, discontentment will lead us to a constant source of striving, won't it? Always, what's next? What's upcoming? What's around the corner? What do they have that I don't have? My neighbors seem to have it all together and I'm just a royal screw-up. What's going on? Or my neighbors (laughs) scream all the time and and, and fight with one another all the time. We're not really doing that bad and it's this constant source of comparison. Or a lack of contentment can indeed be our saving grace. And here's what I mean by that. It can be our saving grace because when we feel lack of contentment relationally, we can do one of two things. We'll keep feeding it as our nemesis or we'll slow down. We'll hit the pause button and in relational tension, we'll turn to the cross and we'll look at our relationship with the Creator who is the truly only one who's a non-shifting shadow, as he says in James. I'm the one who is not like a shifting shadow, but it's constant. And so our source of contention or discontentment will force us to look at him and force us to pause and realize what reality is all about. So in other words, my point in all of this introduction is this. When thinking about the love and war reality of relationships, our feelings of discontentment isn't the killer. What we do with those feelings of discontentment determines whether it kills us or grows us, whether it thwarts us or whether it pushes us on, whether it discourages us or whether it encourages us. What are you doing with your feelings in regards to your relational status now? If you're single, what are you doing with those feelings? If you're married, what are you doing with those feelings? If you're dating, what are you doing with those feelings? If you're parenting, what are you doing with those feelings? How are you dealing with your feelings in regards to relationships? So when we don't put our feelings in check, that's when Satan really gets a hold of us, isn't it? When we don't put our marriage feelings in check, I don't know if I want to be married to this person or, man, I love this person or whatever it is. When we don't put those feelings in check is the moment that Satan begins to whisper in our ear, you would be happier if fill in the blank. You'd be happier if you just left that person. You'd be happier if you had that person. You'd be happier if you just got divorced. You'd be happier if you just got married, singles. Let's switch to y'all. You would be happy if you finally found that knight in shining armor. Can I speak on behalf of all men in the world? The knight in shining armor does not exist. (laughs) Now, I know all the men in here are like, no, no, I am the knight in shining armor. Somebody needs to tell you you're not, and I'm that guy. You're not. (laughs) 
okay? And we get this distorted perception, or men are like, if I could just find that lady that will satisfy me. She won't. She won't. And Satan begins to whisper in our ear when we find ourselves in discontentment if we don't put those feelings in check. And so, how do we get into the sweet spot of contentment? How do we get in that moment to where we really are satisfied in our relationship status? Well, I want to offer you seven considerations that I see from Scripture. Again, let me reiterate, I am not one of those pastors who say, I have the secrets to your contentment today. Will you journey with me? I don't. (laughs) I don't. I'm a failure. I'm a screw-up. Our relationship, mine and Julie's, is great, but it is not perfect. I'm I'm, I'm learning this journey with you, okay? So know that. But number two, I do think Scripture points to some things, and I really just want to highlight them today. Let's see how, as we kick off this series, how does contentment thrive? How can we have relational contentment? And what is the joy even in that? Well, let's look at these. Number one, I'd say this. If you're fighting the love and war with relationships, number one, relational contentment will always put gratefulness over the desire for self. In other words, relational contentment focuses on present joy. Not saying that all cravings are evil. Evil. That's not what I'm getting at. But the people that you find that find relational contentment, they have this knack, if you will, of looking at what am I grateful for rather than what do I want for myself that I don't have. They're grateful. They, they found the key to this gratefulness. Um, <clears throat> rather than devaluing what they don't have or devaluing what they do have. An example of that is maybe my kids. When we were in Arkansas, our, our two little rugrats, um, the ones that are 12 months apart, which will really mess your relationship up for a while if you're trying to figure that out. Um, so they were born 12 months apart, and, and they kind of were Tweedledee and Tweedledum growing up. They were like little puppies. Well, <clears throat> one day, Julie Beth was in the shower getting a little contentment with uh, Jurgen's body bath and maybe some Pinot Grigio, um, and she was in there. The kids were sitting in, in the floor of the room, and they really valued this Sharpie that they had. They loved it. It was one of those thick Sharpies. This is a true story. You can ask Julie Beth this. And she comes out of the room, and she sees the kids, and the kids have taken that Sharpie that they loved, and they have colored all over our carpet. This big, giant black spot, and we're laughing at it and looking at it like it was some dead gum piece of Picasso or something, you know? <laughs> like they had drawn the new Mona Lisa. And Julie Beth is, is, whoa, what have you done? Well, in that moment, our kids valued one thing over something that they were sitting on that they didn't know that they should value as well. They had the beauty of this comfortable carpet. They had the beauty of this carpet that was paid for that didn't have to be replaced. They had the beauty of this carpet that had no stains on it. They had the beauty of this carpet, but they didn't realize it. And I think sometimes our discontentment comes in the fact that we're not graceful for what we have. In our marriages, in our singleness, in our dating... I think relational contentment will always be birthed from a heart of gratefulness for what you do have. And the moment that you begin being ungrateful for what you do have or ungrateful for what you don't have, speaking to both of us here, is the moment we become discontent. Makes sense? And I think the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 13, 3 through 5, he says this. 
Remember those who were in prison, speaking to people who don't have stuff. Remember those who were in prison, as though in prison with them. As those who are mistreated, since you're also in the body. And then he begins to speak to people who do have stuff. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, now speaking to everybody. And here's what he says. And be content, there's our word, with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. So this is a quadruple-edged truth, I think, that we can see in regards to relationships. To the singles, be content with what you don't have. And I know every single in here wants to punch me right in the teeth right now. And go, Troy, but you don't know what that's like. I'm not telling you don't desire. I'm not telling you don't pursue. I'm not telling you don't chase. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying this. If your pursuit and your chase and and all that stuff is what you live for, then you're going to miss out on what you have. I'm not saying don't do that, but don't let that lord over what you do have. And there's an avenue of contentment there to the married. Be content, not with what you don't have. Be content with what you do have. Let us be content with what we do have. The marriage bed is his illustration. How many times do we fight this tension of love war because we look outside of our own window and we go, buddy, that would be awesome to have when we neglect what we have right in our own home. Lack of contentment. To all, be careful not to be driven by earthly things, he says. Money can be just the snare as... For the singles and marrieds all, we can we chase after what we don't have. And he says, be content. Be content with what you do have. And to all, when you do, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in being content with what the Lord's given us, we ultimately don't find contentment in what we do have or don't have. We ultimately find contentment in Christ. I'll be there for you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Makes sense. Well, he goes on to say this. Um, Let's jump to number two. Um, I think relational contentment also will always place a supremacy on God's sovereignty. So if you find yourself in discontentment, I think sometimes we have a low view of God's sovereignty. And a high view of God's sovereignty, I think, will go a long way in our current relational contentment. Let me explain. Psalm 139, the psalmist says this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. If I take up wings of the morning and dwell on the bottom of the sea, even there your hand shall lead and your right hand shall uphold me. Discontentment comes, I believe, because the unnecessary fear in the heart of Christians is almost always the result of forgetfulness. Primarily, forgetfulness that God is sovereign over the area that you're currently feeling discontentment in. He's sovereign even over that. Here's what I'm trying to say. Discontentment flourishes when we begin to act like God isn't sovereign over our current relationship status. The moment that we begin to think (laughs) something like this, um, God, you must be stunned by who I'm married to because I sure am. You must be shocked that I walk the aisle of that person. Because I'm shocked. Or when we begin to think this, God, you must be shocked that I'm still single and haven't found somebody yet. It's a low view of God's sovereignty. Or the moment that we begin to think this, God, you must be shocked that I have these three kids 
and I have no idea how to raise them. <laughs> you must be shocked. Well, he's not shocked. He's not shocked by any of that. And the moment that we have a low view of God's sovereignty is the moment that we'll wrestle with discontentment. But the moment that we have a high view of God's sovereignty, that he's in all things, that he sees all things, that he knows all things, that he has purpose in all things, is the moment that we'll be content, not necessarily in the way that things are panning out, but we'll be content in the sovereign God who's allowing things to pan out the way that they're panning out. That's a big theological bomb, but it's true. It has very practical implications for us. In other words, maybe I just kind of rattled off a lot of... uh, uh, R.C. Sproulish type stuff. Let me go to another theologian, uh, Mick Jagger. And he says it this way. Here's what I'm trying to say. You can't always get what you want, aunt. You can't always get what you need. But if you try sometime, you just might find you get what you need. And that's the way that God functions. He's always sovereign over all of those things. And a high view of God's sovereignty goes a long way in our level of contentment. Let's go to number three. I think number three, relational contentment. If we're trying to be content in our current relationship status, it will always leverage present purpose. In other words, what you get out of something is directly related to and correlated to what you put into something. Always, every single time. And here's what we see with married couples. We see with married couples a lot of times a level of discontentment. And what's happened is, is they're not necessarily discontent with their spouse. What they're discontent with is what them and their spouse used to do and used to feel. And they no longer do those things, so now they feel a level of discontentment. They've given away how they used to pursue. They've given away how they used to be intentional. And now they feel that is directly related. And what we see with singles is this, they, they, get, <laughs> they get on these highs of, man, I'm able to serve the Lord, and I'm able to have this freedom, and I'm able to do this. And then when they hit the low is when they forget about living for the Lord in their singleness, and all they want is to pursue what they don't have. It's this present investment. They quit doing what they used to do in pursuit of what they want to do. Present purpose is always related. Let me explain it maybe through an illustration. Um, I have the joy of helping out a lot with the Tuscaloosa County High School band. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Um, Now, here's the deal. Up until about six years ago, I had no clue what music was about. I mean, of course, I knew what the Beastie Boys was about because, good grief, they invented music, right? Um, But I didn't know anything about music. I didn't know anything about melody. I didn't know anything about instruments. You could have held up a piccolo or flute, a flout, You could have held that thing up and said, what is this? And I would have gone, I don't know. It's like a silver straw, you know. But now I was able to uh, have a child who loves music, and and that kind of sucked me in. And then all of a sudden I started setting up chairs at this thing that he's playing these drums on. And then that led to a relationship with the band director who goes, hey, man, can you help us get some T-shirts together? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want me to put it with them squiggly lines? And he's like, a bass cleft? Yeah, a bass cleft. That's exactly right. I'll put one of them on there. And that kind of sucked me in further. And he says, hey, man, do you want to come and, you know, help us set up for this event? Blah, blah, so I'll go to this event. And now all of a sudden, music that I used to take a nap to, like some people taking sermons, you know, um, music that I, I used to take a nap to, all of a sudden it, it kind of it popped on the scene. I was like, I can, I can I hear that. 
I hear the piccolo now. I really didn't hear the piccolo, but I acted like it, right? Now, all of a sudden, the saxophone started making sense, and the drums made more sense, and the flute made more sense, and then I got more involved. And then I show up. Uh, this is a true story. Not, again, not outing anybody. This will be two weeks in the row that I don't out somebody and indirectly out them. I walk into the band room and hear purple rain this week. I hear music, and all of a sudden, I'm hearing these tones and stuff. And then I go to Moody Music Hall. Never been in there before in my life. I walk into this bad boy, and I'm stunned. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I hear, hey, they, they put these rounded edges because the music bounces off the walls different. And I'm like, we've got to get rounded edges in our church. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I see these big glass things, and I hear about how the music bounces off and then bounces out. And I'm like, and it overwhelms me, and it floods me. And all of a sudden, I see the beauty of it. Why? Because I was intentionally invested in it. And the moment that you lose your intentional investment in your marriage or your singleness is the moment you will find discontentment. We pursue. We chase. If you find yourself not loving your spouse like you used to, well then go back to doing what you used to do when you loved her like you want to love her now. Same thing for husbands and wives. Singles, I'm not saying don't chase that. I'm saying find contentment also in investment. Don't stop investing in what you are currently investing in that you found your status and mission or gospel flourishing in. Get back in it and watch God do something with it. Let's keep going. Uh, there was a verse for that. We don't have time for it. It's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, where he's talking about singles leveraging their singleness for mission. Um, but let's keep going with number four, because I want to honor our time. Number four, relational contentment will always value sanctification over satisfaction. Um, interesting words in Paul's often quoted thorn passage. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says this, where Paul's talking about the thorn that the Lord placed in his side. If, if you don't know what that is, again, you're in a safe place. That's, that's fine. We can talk about that later. But bottom line is Paul felt that there was this thorn in his side, and he asked the Lord to get rid of it. I don't want it. And here's how the Lord responds to him. He says, my grace is, here's our key word again, sufficient for you. Literally meaning, my grace is contentment for you. My grace is contentment for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul goes on to respond to the Lord by saying this. So for the sake of Christ, then I will be content with my weakness. In other words, Paul realized that even in the struggles that he was facing, that through those struggles, God was sanctifying him, not dissatisfying him. And I think a lot of times we see our weaknesses and we become discontent because we're not satisfied. And we don't realize that even in our weaknesses, marriage, singleness, dating, whatever, that God is using that to cultivate us and shape us and sanctify us into who he wants us to become. Even in the hardships. Now it's easy to see that in the joys, isn't it? Relational joys, we're pumped and we're like, yes, God is on his throne. Everything is wonderful. He is pouring out a blessing. And then when it gets hard, we go, Satan is in my ear. 
God is not on his throne, and we don't realize that God uses the bad just as well as he uses the good to sharpen us and to sanctify us. Here's what I'm trying to say. God is always doing something in your relationships for his good, his glory, and ultimately purpose within us that's sharpening us also for our good. Always. He's always doing this. Being humanly satisfied relationally is kind of like taking a spoon and trying to drink all of the ocean one spoonful at a time. We'll never be satisfied here on earth with where we're at. But being satisfied was never the intent of earth. The whole point of earth and everything that goes on with earth is to not satisfy us, but to sanctify us. Gary Thomas said it this way in his book, Sacred Marriage. The point of marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us, does anybody read the book? But to make us holy. And we get this distorted perception of relationships. I would argue through the same thing for singleness. The point of singleness is not, not to make us happy or unhappy. The point of singleness, ultimately, whether you want it to be this way or not, doesn't matter, is to make you more holy in areas that you may already think that you are holy. He's always sanctifying us and sharpening us. And so viewing relationships through this lens goes a long, long way with contentment. Here's what I'm trying to say. Even in your hardships or questions, God is always cultivating maybe patience. Maybe prayer. Maybe he's cultivating purity in your heart. Maybe he's cultivating that cynicism that you have. Maybe he's rooting it out of you through your current relationships. Maybe he's rooting in and out jealousy. Maybe he's rooting in and out anger. He's always doing something. Our God is sovereign and he's always working through relationships. And contentment goes a long way by remembering that. Let's keep going. Number five, I'd say this. Relational contentment pursues holiness over preference. Directly related to what we just talked about a minute ago. Hear what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now there's a big word for us. Because we buy the lie sometimes that we will be content if all we're doing is pursuing godliness. And Paul says, yes, you should pursue godliness. That's great. So for everybody who's pursuing godliness who goes, I'm still not content, there's a disconnect, an unnecessary dichotomy. And so what Paul is saying here is, yes, pursue godliness, but also pursue contentment. And finding those two things will ultimately birth great gain. How are we doing? My whole point in today is trying to get us to examine what is our level of contentment. And where are we at with contentment? Because it impacts us. Discontentment 100% of the time is a result of holiness being shoved in the corner for personal preference. Every time. Every marriage that has ever failed in the world or eternity has failed for that reason right there. One person or the other begins to pursue their own personal preference rather than pursuing holiness. Let me say it in the recall because I've also seen this. There's not a marriage under the sun who where both people are pursuing holiness have divorced. It doesn't occur. 
When this person is pursuing holiness and God's best in all things, and this person is pursuing holiness and God's best in all things, and it's like a competition to love each other like Jesus loves you, <laughs> like that marriage, and I don't know what this was, right? It's actually kind of weird now that I think about it. Okay, right. But when, <laughs> you get the point. When this person is loving their spouse like Jesus loved them, and this person is loving their spouse like Jesus loves them, it's like an endless journey of grace. And that marriage will never fail. It just won't. And I will also argue that for singleness. When singles are pursuing holiness... More than anything else, though this may be hard to hear, when they're pursuing holiness more than anything else, the old hymn does become true. The things of the world grow strangely dim. Again, qualification. Not saying don't pursue marriage. Just saying don't let marriage be an idol. Idol? An idol. That's what I'm trying to get at. Because when you do, it will override your pursuit of holiness. It's a catch-22 every single time. So, let's keep going. Don't shove holiness in the corner for preference. And then number six, relational contentment honors the present standard over chasing unsettlement. Uh, Paul once again says to the Philippians this way, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. In other words... Not I might supply every need of yours, but I will. Meaning your current relationship status is exactly what you need at this moment. Exactly. Don't but, but I'm this, but I'm, it doesn't matter. Your buts don't matter. If this is true, God is doing something. Your present standard is exactly what you need. So to the Christian married, here's what I want to say. I want to say, your spouse is your only standard of beauty. Your only standard of beauty. And the moment that you begin pursuing another standard of beauty is the moment that you mess everything up. The way, let's put it on me. I mean, come on. Julie Beth has to wake up to this ugly mug right here, right? But it's God's standard of beauty for her. Right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right? And all of the collective body goes, <laughs> I'm glad she has to wake up to that, okay? She is my standard of beauty. So the moment that it becomes jacked up is the moment that I look around the room and go, ah, but Jarrett is my standard of beauty. Now that's a little weird, but I love you, buddy. Or I look around the room and I go, Tyler is my standard of beauty. Anna Rose Bell is my standard of beauty. Or, <laughs> believe it or not, Sam Calloway or Reese is my standard of beauty. When I start looking around the room, I know I've used a lot of males in that scenario. Okay? <laughs> but it kind of felt awkward using females. Okay, so anyway, you get what I'm going at. The moment that I go, somebody else is now piquing my interest as my standard of beauty is the moment that I jack it all up. Christian marriage. Who you're married to is your standard of beauty, shape of the hair, shape of the face, shape of the body, attitude of the mouth, whatever. That is your standard of beauty, period. Period. And pursuing anything else will jack the whole thing up. 
I need to hear that. You need to hear that. And we'll be discontent when we pursue anything else. Now, let's get off the Christian marrieds, all right? To the singles. You will always find someone or something different than the last person that you dated. You always will. Well, I like this person because they treat me this way or they look this way or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden you become discontent because you go, but now that person treats me this way and they, got, they drive this car and blah, 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 they get this. And you look at this person and they go, oh, but they got this bank account and they, this one goes to church three days a week and blah, 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 blah. Oh, this one over here. And you just chase and you'll chase and you'll chase because we become discontent with what God has in front of us. Not saying don't measure it. Don't <laughs> I can feel the qualifications. But this, but that, but the... Uh. Okay, you get what I'm getting at. Um, we honor God's present standard. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. Following your heart relationally is horrific advice. <laughs> It's horrendous advice. Well, I, don't, I know I love your grandmother too. I love her. I don't know her. And yes, she has the best cornbread in the world. Fine, whatever. I get it. But your grandmother or grandpa telling you, well, I love you. Now you just, you just, you just, in that dating scenario, you just need to follow your heart. Well, following my heart would lead me to adultery, murder, financial scandal, all kind of bizarre thoughts. If you want to really know what's in my heart, I will mess the whole world up if everything, if I follow everything in my heart. It's horrible advice. Don't follow your heart. Pray. Seek the Lord. That's why Jeremiah said the heart is desperately wicked. It's desperately wicked. Who can contain it, Jeremiah says. So be careful. Honor the present standard. Not following your heart at every whim. And then let's wrap it up. I know you're tired, I'm tired. <laughs> Number seven. The relational contentment ultimately comes only, bottom line. I basically could have said this one thing and wrapped up the whole message. <laughs> Relational contentment ultimately comes only from an intimate relationship with God through Jesus. He's the one that impacts our standard. He's the one that impacts our present viewing. He's the one that impacts God's sovereignty. He impacts everything. Paul said this to the Philippians in chapter 4. This is the oft-quoted verse that a lot of people, again, put eye black on. And again, that's not the point of this verse. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul says this, I've learned in whatever situation... I'm to be content. There it is again. Like if you walk out of here today and go, what was the sermon on? You should go, contentment. That's the key. If you hadn't caught it yet, that's the key. I'm to be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. Whether married, whether single. I would argue Paul has done both. Because you can't be a member of the Sanhedrin if you're not married. But then later on in 1 Corinthians he says he's single. So I would argue he gets it all. In whatever situation and circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all those things 
through him that strengthens me. In other words, I can handle marriage, I can handle singleness, I can handle dating, I can handle waiting, I can handle parenting, I can handle it all if I sit where we begin at the foot of the cross. Because that's where everything makes sense. That's where we pursue holiness. That's where we pursue the standard. That's where everything makes sense. It's a non-shifting shadow. I didn't put this quote up there because I didn't have time. John Piper says it this way. Holy moly. Please just try to hear this. And I'll shoot it to you. If you text me, I'll shoot it to you. We will only be truly content with what we have when we know that we have him. And we will remember that we have him when we hear and believe his voice. The gospel really is the only thing, as Dolan Davis says, that changes our wanter. Because when the gospel comes alive in our hearts, it's no longer about what do I want that I don't have or what do I not want that I do have. It is now changed to what does Christ want in this present reality of mine right here, right now. It's a great quote. Well, as the band comes up, I am not good at topical messages. Y'all know this is hard, hard, hard for me. It is hard to jump out of the Gospel of Matthew and systematic. It's really easy to go, what are we going to talk about today? Well, what Matthew said, okay? This is really hard for me. Um, So I want to be clear at the sake of redundancy. What all this that I'm saying does not mean. What this doesn't mean is that you embrace current abuse if you're in an abuseful situation. That's not what this means. That's not what I'm getting at. It doesn't mean that you just sit back and don't pursue growth. That's not what this means. If that's what you got out of this sermon, that you just sit back and just let the proverbial, you know what, hit the roof (laughs) or fall on your head, then you didn't understand anything that I said. And I would love to have coffee with you this week. Please, let's hang out have coffee. If you have questions, I, I invite you. You can come to my house. Like, we'll skip the Super Bowl today if you want to. I don't, I don't have uh, iron in the fire anyway. I think both teams stink. Denver Broncos should be in it, right? Um, we'll hang out. Let's, let's talk. Let's, if, if you don't understand what I'm getting at, let's, please, let's do that. Here's what I'm trying to say. Contentment? can sound lazy and shy and cowardice from an earthly perspective. But according to Scripture, contentment requires profound strength, profound intentionality, and profound strategy to leverage your current situation for the glory of Christ rather than reveling in what you don't have or not wanting what you do have. I love you guys. And I've been bombarded with questions all year long. And we're going to try to unpack love and war for the next three weeks. But I think contentment is the foundation upon which everything else has got to be built. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord Jesus, I fully realize that 
words from a man or woman, they only go so far. God, I've, I've tried my best to honor what I believe you have spoken to me these past couple of weeks. And so my prayer is, God, anything that caused us to look upon you, anything that is of biblical value, God, I pray, takes deep root in the heart of marrieds, singles, dating, divorced, waiting. Anything of value, I pray, takes deep root and grows and flourishes. And God, anything that was confusing or causes us to rely on ourselves and not you, I pray that you wipe it away, that you burn it like maybe an ash and just kind of let it float out of our brains. Um, God, I just want you to be glorified in Northport and Tuscaloosa. I, I want you to be glorified in our relationship statuses. God, I want people to be happy in their current situation, like in the truest sense of the word happy. God, I don't want them to be happy. I want them to be giddy. God, make us a giddy church in our relationship statuses. But more than all that, God, that you would leverage them for kingdom purposes. In the name of Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen. Well, church, thank you for uh, being here. I want to say just parting shots to the divorced in the room. You are not damaged goods. Your consequences are real, but the gospel speaks to your need. To the single people in the room, you are not defined by your relationship status. To the dating in the room, be holy, pursue holiness. Don't let society demand something of you that Jesus does not. To the waiting, you're normal. It's okay. You're normal. And then to the marriage. God is using your marriage more than you think. Don't bail. Don't bail. Don't bail. Don't bail. Don't bail.